Amen. I invite you to remain standing and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Yes, we are still in Ephesians chapter 6 for a few more weeks. Beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your people, and Lord, we pray that your spirit would come and that he would open up our hearts, our minds, our spiritual eyes to see and to understand your word. Lord, we want to be disciples that are faithful followers of Jesus. Make us be that, God, and do that through your word. And Father, I pray that your words would remain today, and my own words, Lord, that are not helpful would just fall to the ground. In Jesus' name, for your glory, amen. You may be seated. Aloha and welcome to all of you. We are glad that you are joining us this evening uh, we understand that sometimes making it to church at 4 o'clock is not convenient. Uh, this is a perfect time to take a nap or settle down on the beach, but we're thankful for all of you who do um, come and join us. And um, yeah, we, we don't know how long we're going to be gathering at 4, but hopefully at some point uh, we'll go back to mornings. Uh, we'll leave that up to the Lord and, you know, for Him to provide those opportunities um, what do you think is the most defining thing about us as the people of God? What is the most defining thing about us as Christians? And no doubt, it's our story of salvation. Like, in heaven for all of eternity... We're going to celebrate Jesus. For eternity, we're going to be filled with endless joy and gratitude, worshiping God for saving us for the work that he has done. A little over a year ago, we finished a study through Exodus, and we saw how Exodus is a story about the salvation of Israel, the people of God. The book of Israel celebrates the work of God. The people of God were enslaved to a powerful nation. 
Pharaoh was the king, who was a tyrant that made them work, do unbearable tasks. Israel was hopeless. They were powerless. And so God sees their enslavement. God hears their groaning. And so the rest of the story is how God powerfully rescues them, how he saves them out of Egypt. And so God puts on a parade of his power. He brings the entire nation, Egypt, to their knees. He ultimately destroys Pharaoh and the most powerful army in the world. And he brings out the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he ultimately brings them to the promised land. God saves them from their abuser. He rescues them from tyranny and from a brutal slavery. And if you remember, it's not as if Israel deserved this salvation. They served and worshipped other gods. They worshipped the Egyptian gods. They were disobedient throughout the whole entire journey. They were unfaithful. Over and over again, they grumbled against God. They doubted God's goodness. It's a story of a faithful, merciful, loving God, redeeming an unfaithful, ungrateful people. And so, ultimately, today, even today, the story of Exodus is a defining story for all of Jews to this day. They still celebrate the work that God has done. But what is our story of salvation? Here's the crazy thing about Exodus. As amazing and powerful as that story is, those events are just shadows that were pointing to something much greater that would happen. God saving his people out of Egypt points to the real thing, which is the story of our salvation. How incredible is that? And so here in Ephesians, Paul tells us our own Exodus story, our salvation story. That the, the book of Ephesians is very much uh, written after the book of Exodus. We too were enslaved. We were enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. We were all in bondage to a master, Satan. Death ruled in our hearts. We were working to save Satan, to serve Satan rather than our creator God. We were enslaved to sin, and we walked in and we did the works of darkness. We were without hope. We were in bondage, and our definite end, the guaranteed end of that life, was eternal death. And on top of that, we could not save ourselves. We could not help ourselves. We were powerless against our sin. We were powerless against our flesh, against Satan. And in Ephesians 2-4, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so if you think about who we were, this, these words, but God, describe the great interruption God invades our hopelessness. He interrupts our deadness to save us from our enemies and from our horrid state. And as you read this text, you can see the heart of God, the posture of God's heart, the tenderness of God. Verse 4, but God being rich in Mercy, that is his response. Because of the great love with which he loved us. We do not deserve this kind of treatment. We do not deserve God's tender kindness and his love. Listen to Titus 3. Titus 3, 3. Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is how how Paul describes this. He's like, for we ourselves were this. I mean, this is some bad stuff. We do not want to be with people like this. And this is who we all were. And so verse 4 is the response of God to, to this. Listen. Again, it starts with but. But. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. And again, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We were bad, and God had mercy. The Bible makes this clear over and over again. Our salvation is not initiated by anything that we have done. Not because of our works. Not a result of our works. We were wretched. We were rotten. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were in darkness, hopeless and helpless. But God was merciful to us. He saved us. And he did it for one and only one reason alone. He loved us. He loved us while we were low. 
And here's what he saves us from. This is a fact. This is a reality for all of us. This is our story, guys. This is still the reality for some of you. God could definitely take you out of here. He saved us from spiritual death. He saved us from bondage to Satan. He saved us from the wrath of God, the just wrath of God that we deserved. He saved us from sin and its destructive power in our lives. He saved us from the kingdom of darkness. He saved us from our future eternal damnation in hell. He saved us from hostility and alienation. That is what God did for you. If you're a child of God, this is your story. This is what God saved you from. It's no small thing. And here's what he saved us to. Just a short list. There's a lot more. He restored our community and fellowship with our creator, God. He saved us to a future inheritance. Eternity with Jesus in the new heaven and earth. He forgave us, healing us. He freed us from guilt, shame, and sin. All the riches and the glories of Jesus are now ours. And the place where he accomplished this great work is the cross. On the cross, Jesus was hung naked in shame to take on our sin and shame on himself. On the cross, he destroyed our captor. He destroyed the enemy, Satan and death. Jesus became the Passover lamb that was slaughtered in, the, in our place so that we could be passed over and saved. God did not spare his son so that he may spare us. Listen, it is incredibly important to know and understand our story of salvation. It's incredibly important to realize and know the great cost of this salvation, the work it took on God's behalf to save us. There's a reason why Paul over and over again, reminds us in Ephesians, our salvation story. Over and over, he goes back to show us who we were to then celebrate who we are now in Christ. Because the story of our salvation, the work that Jesus, our Savior, has accomplished, it is the source of joy. It is the source of worship and confidence and boldness. It is incredibly important for us to know our story. To partially understand the story of salvation is to only benefit in part 
of being a child of God. It's to leave so much on the table. Here's what Ray, Ray Ortland says about understanding only part of your salvation story. He says, halfway Christianity is the most miserable existence of all. Half-hearted Christians know enough about their sin to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with the Savior to become happy. Wholehearted Christianity is happy, and there is no other happiness. How true is that? To halfway understand the story of your salvation is to be miserable. But to intimately know the work that God has accomplished to save us, to intimately know his mercies, his love towards you, now that's where joy is found. And we look, when we look at scriptures, when we look at, if you search salvation and joy, if you just search joy, most of the scriptures that talk about joy and rejoicing have to do something with the salvation of God. Hundreds of verses from Psalms and the prophets in the New Testament. Here's a couple of them. There's hundreds of them. Psalm 13:5. But I have trusted your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 35, 9. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. Psalm 40, 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. There's a story in Luke 10. Uh, the disciples of Jesus, they return from a mission trip, and they're all stoked. And they're like, Jesus, in your name we cast out demons. We healed people. We did all this amazing stuff. And in Luke 10, 20, Jesus is like, cool. He says, but do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. He says, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in your salvation. Romans 5.11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Church, listen. A deep understanding of your salvation, a deep understanding of the work accomplished by Jesus produces joy. It's the source of joy. It's an acknowledgement that I did not deserve this. I did nothing to achieve this. Yet God loved. God worked. 
And God has accomplished what I could never do. It's an acknowledgement that I am in the hands right now. This is not just a past thing. But right now, I am in the hands of a God who loves me more than I could ever imagine. How could our hearts not be filled with joy? And so in our text, Paul tells us in Ephesians 7, 6, 7, as we wage war against the spiritual evil forces, as we are called to stand our ground, he calls us to take the helmet of salvation. Have you ever wore, wore every, any kind of a helmet? Maybe you rode a bike, um, motorcycle, maybe you played football or baseball, or you were in the military. When you put on a helmet, it feels real intimate, yeah? It's like in your face. It's very nice when it fits you well. And a good helmet, it keeps you safe. It protects you from your head from, from the enemy, from the damage it can receive. The best helmet for spiritual warfare is salvation itself. As you wage war, as we wage war, the helmet is this intimate understanding that the war has already been won. I am saved. I am secure. Though I am fighting, Jesus has already accomplished the work. My future with Jesus is sure. To have the helmet of salvation is to deeply know and believe that your salvation, to, deep, to know and believe your salvation story. It's to rejoice in it and be filled with the sure hope of the coming eternal inheritance promised to you by God. And just like the Bible is filled with stories about people who rejoice and celebrate in the salvation of God, people who acknowledge the salvation, they savor it. The Bible is also filled with stories of people who have neglected their salvation, people who have forgotten the work of God. And one of the greatest examples of that is back to, if we go back to Exodus, is the people of God, Israel. In the wilderness, on their way to the promised land, they were quick to forget what God has saved them from. They quickly forgot all the promises of God, of where he was leading them to. They forgot their horrid past. And they forgot their bright promised future. And we see the result. They forgot their salvation story. And so their joy was turned to grumbling and idolatry. That was the result. They forgot their salvation story. And their joy quickly turned into grumbling and idolatry. 
And just like them, we too often forget our story of salvation. And our joy also suffers. Our joy also turns into grumbling and often idolatry. If we do not find our joy in God, if we do not rejoice in the salvation that he has accomplished, what do we do? We still want to be joyful. So we go find this joy somewhere else. And that is what idolatry is. And here's what's dangerous. When we turn to idolatry, most often for us as Christians, it's, it's not drastic. It's actually hard to notice. It takes on a very subtle form. It's not like we go from worshiping God to some sort of paganism. When we forget our story of salvation, our expectations from God begin to change. When we forget our story of salvation, we still expect God to save us, but we expect him to save us from things that he has never promised us. And so here's the question, what did God promise his people? What did God promise to save us from, and what did he not promise to save us from? And this is where our our idolatry is revealed. So here's a list, just a partial list of things that he did not promise to save you from. Yet we expect every day for him to save us from these things. Parents, he did not promise you easy kids. He did not promise to save you from troubles of being a parent. He did not promise to save you from financial trouble. He never promised you financial success. He did not promise to save you from marital troubles. He did not promise you a perfect wife or a husband that will make you happy. He did not promise to save you from work troubles. He did not promise to save you from an ordinary life, a mundane life. He did not promise to give you that Instagram life all those people post. He didn't promise to save you from health troubles. He did not promise you a better you. He did not promise to unlock some sort of great potential that's somewhere deep inside of you. He did not promise you a way to escape from troubles of life. He did not promise you serenity and balance. He did not promise you popularity, success, that you will be loved by all. He did not promise to save you from temptations, from trials, from persecutions, and from suffering. On the contrary, he actually promised you trials, suffering, and persecution. 
What is it that you are seeking God to save you from? Is it actually what he promised you? Is your joy dependent on getting things that God has never promised you, but things that you want? Are you doubting God's goodness because he did not give you things he didn't promise you? Church, let's remember the actual story of our salvation. See how hopeless you were without him. Enslaved to sin and darkness, headed towards eternal damnation. See the mercy and loving kindness of your God displayed on the cross. See the hope that he has given you and promised you in the future. When we look at the life of Paul, who was completely committed to Jesus and the work of ministry, he says, I have learned to be content. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That doesn't mean I'm going to go win a basketball game or succeed in life and in business. Earlier on, he says, I know how to live in plenty. I know how to live in need. Through the hardships and trials of life, Paul learned what it means to be content and what it means to continue to rejoice. Look at the life of Jesus. His life would not be considered as successful by the world's standards. By the standards of the Instagram pastors, by the popular church, Jesus' life was not a success. And today, just go to any popular church Instagram page. The pastors... They're here to tell you that Jesus is here to unlock your greatest potential. They do talk about Jesus, but this Jesus is centered around you. Jesus is here to make you more lovable, more gifted. He's here to make you run your next mile faster. He's a stepping stone to a better you, a more empowered you. Jesus is a means to an end. Jesus exists to save you to a better you. And here's what you won't hear from these pop churches. You will not hear the warning of hell. You will not hear about the coming righteous God to judge the living and the dead. You will not hear that those who remain in sin will face the wrath of God. You will not hear that without God, we are desperate sinners in need of a loving Savior. You will not hear the true story of salvation. And so today in the church, we have an epidemic 
of disappointed and disheartened Christians because they were told to expect from God a salvation that God has actually never promised. When the hardships of life hit, they exit out because their expectations of God failed them. But it was not the God of scriptures. Here's what God does promise you. He promises to sanctify you, to make you into the image of Jesus. And he uses all of the hardships of life to accomplish that beautiful work, including the troubles in raising your kids, living with your spouse, your job, and any other hardship. He uses it. Don't try to escape that work. He promises you that through any trial that you will face, he will be by your side and he will give you strength. He promises you that as you put on the helmet of salvation, as you embrace the story of your salvation, you will experience joy in the midst of your hard life. Most of all, he promises you himself. He promises you Jesus. Not so that you can use Jesus to get to the things you want. But he promises Jesus and he gives him to you because Jesus is actually enough. Like Israel, who forgot the big picture of their salvation... And they judged God's goodness and love by the immediate and the urgent. They lacked meat, and so they say God has abandoned us. Even though there's a pillar of fire in the midst of their camp, which is the presence of God. We too often hang the goodness and faithfulness of God on the immediate and the urgent. And we ask him to prove himself in those things. Things that he never told us he will save us from. And we forget the big picture of what he is doing. Church, do not forget your story. Remember God's grace and mercy. Realize what he has accomplished in your life. Don't forget that he is with you and that he is faithful in the midst of trouble. Satan works hard for us to forget our story. Satan works hard to replace our expectations of salvation. He wants us to doubt the goodness of God. Remember your story. Put it on like a helmet on your head. Intimate. You can always feel it. Remember what God saved you from in the future that He has prepared for you. And be filled with joy. And know who saved you Jesus. He is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises.
We thank you for the work that you have accomplished. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that you have rescued us out of sin, out of bondage to Satan, out of darkness, and you have brought us into your light. We thank you that we are safe and secure in your arms right now. We thank you for the future that we have with you. Father, may the story of our salvation, the work that you have done, be the most important thing about us. May, that, may the work of Jesus be the thing we celebrate the greatest in our lives. Father, may we say that Jesus is enough in the midst of trouble, in the midst of hardships of being a parent or in a marriage or at work or singleness or loneliness, whatever it is, may our souls proclaim that Jesus, you are enough. Father, we want to be a church where you are glorified. We want to be a people that enjoy you in the midst of trouble, in the midst of trials. Lord, help us be a people who enjoy you and celebrate the work that you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.